Welcome to another quarantine episode of Evidence-Based Radio. As always, you can find this and previous episodes as a podcast on your favorite podcatcher or via the website evidencebasederrata.com. Tonight, we are going to have a theme, and that theme is birds. I know I talk a lot about them, so I figured why not give them their own show. My bird feeder is often kind of like Grand Central Station, especially in fall and winter. Sparrows, house finches, black-capped chickadees, titmice, nuthatches, three different species of woodpecker, cardinals, blue jays, morning doves, starlings. In fact, this past year, some of them were actually born in my eaves, unfortunately, and the occasional grackle. In the spring and summer, the chickadees, titmice, and nuthatches, as well as the largest of the woodpeckers, make their own way and are replaced with goldfinches, red-winged blackbirds, more starlings and grackles, and the occasional rose-breasted grosbeak early in the season. In the yard, there are robins galore, who prefer worms rather than my pittance of an offering of seed or in winter, suet as well. And, of course, if you go a little further afield, you'll see the usual trio uh, that are always out and about in these parts, which are the crows, hawks, and turkey vultures. The turkey vultures are especially incredible because they're just so large. Everyone thinks of a hawk as being the kind of epitome of a soaring bird. But as ugly as some might think them to be, a turkey vulture is actually quite the ambitious and impressive glider. And so, um, oh, and of course we can't forget owls. I don't generally see them, but I know they're out there. And so there is just so much nature just in my front yard, just in the neighborhood. And that actually is something that, if you listen often, you know, is one of the things that keeps me grounded and calm in this world of uncertainty. So let's start by talking about acorn woodpeckers. A study of the birds in California showed that these birds have a complex and unusual community. The birds actually go to quote-unquote war with one another in order to secure prime spots in the pecking order, and their battles are watched by birds from up to two miles away. The battles, which can break out in minutes after the death of a high male especially, can be attended by spectators in less than an hour, and the battles are fierce. You can see birds with eyes gouged out, with blood on their plumage. They fall to the ground, holding each other's legs when they're fighting, said Sahas Barve, lead author of the study and a postdoctoral fellow at the Smithsonian National Museum of Natural History. These birds have spears for mouths, so they can do a lot of damage. Since individual birds are hard to distinguish, 
Barve and his colleagues from Old Dominion University in Virginia, the University of California, Berkeley, and the Cornell Lab of Ornithology fitted the birds with radio tags to track their movements within Berkeley's Hastings National History Reservation. They found what they called warrior birds spending up to 10 hours a day for multiple days engaging in savage battles with, again, other birds leaving their own territories for an hour or more to come and watch the spectacle. Now, these birds display several traits which invite comparison to humans. The birds, which range from Oregon and California to Mexico, Central America, and Northern Colombia, have complex social networks where they live in groups of up to 16 birds in oak trees studded with acorns. Now, sadly, the late 2020 summer wildfires did burn up parts of the 2,500-acre Hastings Reserve, including several woodpecker territories with acorn stores built up over generations. So hopefully they will be able to recover in that area as time goes on. Now, the groups have multiple male and female breeders, and the chicks are raised communally with older non-breeding offspring who haven't yet moved on to their own territories, helping with the chicks. The individual eggs aren't able to be identified by their mothers, but mothers may still take aggressive steps to ensure that eggs are reared communally. And so they might do something like destroy eggs from other birds in order to ensure that everyone lays eggs at the same time. So even when they aren't actually uh, able to tell which eggs are theirs, they still want to know that their eggs are going to be taken care of in exactly the same way as other birds in the nest. And so um, even though it may seem kind of gruesome, if you have all of the individual eggs being reared at the same time, that gives everyone the best chance of having their genes passed on to those offspring. And so there is a definite kind of social uh, hierarchy, but also connection there. And so the birds are working theoretically together in order to make sure that the entire tree's community is able to be um, supported and the chicks fledged and everyone go on and be uh, successful. Now, these uh, birds, they actually will eat flies and other insects when available. But one of the things that they're noted for is that the birds also build up stores of acorns by using their sharp beaks to drill holes in the bark of the oak trees in which they live, or in other convenient places such as telephone poles. Uh, and so what they do is they place acorns within those holes. Over time, these granaries can grow from a few hundred to tens of thousands of acorns. The largest granaries are fiercely protected. When all of the members of a particular sex have died or disappeared from a social group, a power struggle will ensue. 
coalitions of birds in groups of two or three of the missing sex will arrive to do battle. Female bands are often composed of sisters or a mother and daughter or mother and daughters who wish to breed on their own. The study found that up to 12 coalitions could take part in a single battle, which can last between five days and a week for a, for a major granary. And the roars of the combatants can be heard a football field away. This really is very comparative to humans in some respects, though obviously we always have to be careful with those comparisons. Now, the researchers are not quite yet sure what gains are made by the birds who come to view the spectacle, but there must be some reason for them to abandon their own territories, which makes it worth the risk. Previous research has shown that the birds regularly keep track of membership in other territories, visiting an average of six other trees a day, which helps understand how they can so quickly come to observe power struggles. They're keeping really close tabs on who lives where, how they are related, which birds should be where, and all of that, Parve notes. These radio tags are helping us unravel hidden movements of the woodpeckers. They're much more complex than we thought. And so, yeah, that's really interesting that they have this entire system that just seems so complex and so uh, multi-layered and... You know, we used to always think that birds were just, you know, birds. They would come to your bird feeder, they ate seeds, they'd go back to doing whatever they do. Uh, occasionally you would find them nesting and rearing chicks. But, um, you know, in the last 20 years or so, especially, we've learned so much more about how all sorts of birds, not just corvids and parrots, are able to do these things. And so one of the things that researchers wanted to find out is, of course, how they do it. And so researchers have long wondered how birds, which lack a neocortex, could engage in such complex behavior. New research suggests that a previously unfound arrangement of microcircuits may be the equivalent of the neocortex in birds. A separate study showed that this region of the brain is linked, in fact, to conscious thought. It's often assumed that birds' alien brain architecture limits thought, consciousness, and most advanced cognition, says John Marsluff, a wildlife biologist and specialist on crows at the University of Washington, Seattle, who was not involved in the studies. He suggests that this won't be a surprise to behaviorists, but rather a relief, because, of course, if you're a behaviorist and you're trying to say how these birds have all these advanced systems where they have family units and struggles and understand concepts like territory and, um, as we'll find out later, numeracy, uh, being able to count, things like that, um, being able to make decisions, the kinds of things we know that crows can do, tool making, uh, you know, the things that parrots can do, have basically conversations almost equivalent to those had between apes and humans. How do you explain all of that if you don't have some kind of 
structure in the birds' brains to explain it. And so for behaviorists, this is a huge breakthrough um, because they've always known that this is out there. They've just had a really hard time getting people to understand it um, because you know, a lot of scientists are very sort of straightforward in their approach to things. So if you have a bird brain and it doesn't have a neocortex and what you know is the needed part for consciousness and advanced cognition is a neocortex, then it's hard to sell that birds are actually doing this rather than just doing it through base instincts that mimic higher order learning and understanding. And so um, this known behavioral complexity of birds and its comparison to mammals, again, uh, especially with birds that are more intelligent being able to do things that some primates can do, uh, was what led Martin Stasho, a neuroanatomist at Ruhr University Bochum in Germany, to investigate the avian forebrain known to control perception. When comparing the two simply by looking at the structures, again, they bear little resemblance to one another, so it makes total sense that people didn't understand what is going on. But we know that there has to be a way for birds' brains to process higher functions, such as those processed in the neocortex. And so Stasho and his colleagues examined microscopic slides of three homing pigeon brains. Homing pigeons are also very smart. Using 3D polarizing light imaging... And so this allowed them to see the connections in high resolution and allowed them to analyze the connections of a region called the pallium. Now, this is an area thought to most resemble the neocortex. And so while a neocortex has six layers, the pallium still has distinct structures connected by long fibers. They compared the pallia with those of cortices from rats, monkeys, and humans, and they found that these fibers are organized in a way that actually mirrors that of the fibers in those mammalian cortexes. And so researchers also looked at the brain of two distantly related species, pigeons and owls. And so in this case, researchers injected crystals into the dissected brains of the birds and discovered circuits in the sensory regions that resemble those found in the mammalian neocortex. It's down to the connections rather than the actual gross anatomy or architecture, which gives both birds and mammals their higher cognitive function. Now, before we go on, I do want to make a note about, obviously, uh, testing on animals. I do would always prefer that we did not rather than did test on animals. And I think that we're becoming much better at finding ways to reduce our use of animal models. Um, but unfortunately, there are some places where animal models just are, are um, unnecessarily, are, are needed necessarily. Um, so if you can't really see into the brain of a bird, um, without dissecting it. Unfortunately, um, you know, I think it's important for us to know these sorts of things because it helps us develop ways to, uh, 
protect birds, to uh, convince people that they should care about birds in general, that they should care about conservation and things like that. And so even though it may seem cruel in the short term, it may actually be something that can really help us to develop ways to help birds, help animals, uh, help ourselves in really important ways. Um, but I do think that it's always better to try and find a alternate solution than to experiment on animals. And I think that that's the same way that all researchers feel. Um, I think sometimes researchers get kind of uh, painted as cruel and uncaring about lab animals. But obviously, people are studying these animals, uh, especially in these sorts of situations, in behaviorist um, kind of situations where they want to understand the behavior of the animal, because they in are interested in those animals, and they want to know more about them. They don't want to just cut them up for the sake of cutting them up. Um and I think that that's a really important thing to remember when we talk about stories that involve um, vivisection. Okay, uh, sorry, I did just want to put that in because I didn't want to uh, talk about it without uh, noting the issue there. Um, but I would also say, again, we are constantly finding new and better ways to image um, all sorts of, uh, structures without having to actually cut into them. We are developing better, uh, computer modeling. We're doing all sorts of things that are absolutely working towards a future where we won't have to use animals in a lab for pretty much anything. And I'm certainly looking forward to that day. Absolutely. All right. But let's get back to talking about birds specifically. This research confirms the old adage that looks can be deceiving, Marsliff says. Although bird and mammalian brains, quote, look very different, this study shows us that they are actually wired in very complementary ways. Now, a second study looked at whether or not birds have conscious experiences. Are they aware of what they see and do? Andre Snyder, a neurophysiologist at the University of Tübingen, again in Germany, observed the brains of carrion crows as they responded to cues. Now, they used a test similar to one that probes for signs of consciousness in primates, a, so a state of mind thought to arise with the sudden activation of certain neurons. So the idea is that certain neurons are going to fire when you're having conscious thought. And so that's what the researchers were looking for. They were looking for that firing of neurons to show that there was conscious thought there. They trained two lab-raised one-year-old carrion crows to move or stay in response to a faint cue displayed on a monitor. The crows were rewarded when they completed the task correctly. Electrodes were implanted into the crows' brains in order to record their neural signals as they performed the task. When they reacted, their neurons fired, which suggested that they had consciously perceived the cue. Because importantly, when they didn't react, the neurons didn't fire. The neurons that fired were located in the pallia. So a lot of good kind of um, complementary work here on finding out that the pallia is almost certainly the place where this kind of cognitive function is happening. 
Snyder calls this an empirical marker of sensory consciousness in birds' brains, again, similar to that seen in primates. Now, of course, some researchers still are very, very, very wedded to the idea that humans are the only ones who have real consciousness, that we are somehow unique. Um, I obviously do not ascribe to that idea. Um, I think it's hubristic and kind of unrealistic, but, you know, we're humans. That's how we roll. <laughs> and so, again, though, this is actually really exciting for bird behaviorists who also are on my team <laughs> and don't tend to think that humans are the only ones with consciousness. Now, Stacho and Nider note that the building blocks for mammalian and avian cognition may have developed in the last common ancestor some 320 million years ago. Of course, mammal and bird brains evolved differently, Stacho says. What is surprising is how similar they still are in their perceptual and cognitive abilities. So yeah, pretty cool. Okay, so another a surprising aspect, especially of more intelligent birds like crows and parrots, is uh, you may know or you may not know their ability to have fairly long lives, honestly, um, sometimes fairly astonishingly long. So crows raised in captivity can live into their 50s, and some parrots have lived into the early 80s. And so uh, there's one bird that we know lived to be at least 82, um, but it isn't quite sure when he actually was born, um, because he was born sometime in the 1800s. Um, and there was another bird that actually lived to be 83. Um, and so he probably was a little bit older than that. But since we can't tell for certain, you know, but early 80s for birds, um, for parrots, and that's pretty amazing. Um, I didn't even actually know about the crows. That's, that's very exciting that crows can live into their 50s. Um, because I, of course, am very much team Corvid. <laughs> And so new research suggests that the two are frankly linked, which isn't surprising given the fact that they are correlated. Um, correlation doesn't obviously uh, lead to causation, but sometimes it makes sense that if you have two things being correlated, they do have a connection to one another. Okay, so birds with larger brains, which are energetically expensive to maintain, are more likely to be able to have the flexibility to respond to challenges that allow them to live longer. And so when I mean energetically expensive, I mean that we use a lot of calories in order to do brain function. You may not think about it, but I think that humans use about 20% of their daily caloric intake just in maintaining their brain and their ability to think and do things using that brain up there. Um, so that's a lot. That's very energetically expensive. <laughs> and so, yeah. If you don't get eaten by predators, if you don't starve, then these evolutionary processes can start acting on other mechanisms that allow you to have a longer life, said Alejandro Gonzalez Voyer, an evolutionary biologist at the National Autonomous University of Mexico in Mexico City. Now, big-brained animals also tend to take longer to mature. And so in order to try and 
suss out which influences the other, a big brain or a long life, Gonzalez Voyer and his colleagues compared the lifespans and brain sizes of more than 300 bird species. They looked at birds from a wide range of bird families with varied early development traits, such as how developed the young are after hatching and the age at which chicks fledge. They then used models that looked that took into account evolutionary relationships and developmental traits. And so the researchers found a direct link between a bird's brain size relative to its body and its lifespan, including across developmental stages post-hatching. And so basically, the bigger the brain, the longer the life of the bird. Now, when we say bigger the brain, obviously you're thinking a lot of birds are very small and they have very small brains, but it's actually, um, if you don't remember or haven't been listening, uh, when they say big brains, they mean brain to body ratio. So if you are a tiny bird, but you have a fairly large brain compared to the rest of your body, then that's what's important. Um, you can be a very large animal and have a fairly small brain. Um, something say like a giraffe has a pretty small brain compared to the size of its body. Um, elephants, on the other hand, actually have a pretty big brain and in relative, um, related to their body size. So elephants are very big, but their heads are pretty big. Um, and there's a fairly large brain in there that's supporting them. And of course, we tend to think of elephants as being much more intelligent than giraffes. Not to say that I'm trying to disparage giraffes, just that they tend to have much smaller brains. <laughs> okay. So again, it just, um, that's what they mean by large brained. And so, Gonzalez Voyer's team's findings suggest that brain size, rather than developmental stages such as how long the bird remains in the egg or how long it takes to fledge, which is, which is what directly correlates to long life. The findings confirm that brain size can actually have a direct effect on longevity, said Gonzalez Voyer. Now, this might also suggest an evolutionary reason for why big brains are favored. Unfortunately, a slower, smarter life can have drawbacks. If there is a disruption in their population, animals that take longer to develop and reproduce have a harder time recovering. Um, and so that's something we've seen very much in whales, for instance. Um, they have big brains and a long development time, and so it takes a long time for their populations to recover. And so slow development can mean that, quote, it takes longer for you to reach the population size that you had before, so it makes those species more vulnerable to extinction, said Gonzalez Voyer. And so his next stop is to examine if this relationship is different depending on the environment in which the animals live. It may mean that in areas with limited resources, having a calorically expensive big brain just isn't worth the investment. I would imagine in deserts or other environments where the availability of food is quite limited means that there's not much you can do to go beyond what the habitat offers, explains Gonzalez Voyer. And so, yeah, it looks like if you have a big brain, you're likely to live longer if you're a bird. Um, but 
you know, we do tend to find parrots and crows in places with an abundance of foodstuffs. So it would be really interesting to see if that holds out for big brains with long lives in general. Okay, so birds can be something other than brainy. I mean, that's very cool. Um, But they can also be things like kind. Researchers have found pro-social behavior towards conspecifics in magpies. So conspecifics are members of um, the same species. It's just a fancy word uh, that I actually do like. (laughs) So they seem to take each other's perspective into account in their decision and thus seem to show sympathy, said Utrecht-based biologist Horg Massen in an experiment with azure-winged magpies, which are beautiful, by the way. Massen, along with colleagues from the University of Vienna and the Swedish Lund University, looked at whether pro-social behavior was instinctive and hardwired. My earlier research has shown that birds also sometimes do something for someone else, said Massen. The question was, however, whether this is instinctive behavior that is ingrained or whether this behavior is flexible, and whether these birds might also take into account how great the need of the other animal is. And so, in the experiment, one magpie was given an abundance of mealworms, a tasty treat for the birds. Other birds were either given access to mealworms or none at all. The magpies were then given an opportunity to share their bounty with others through a wire mesh. They found that the magpies were willing to share with their fellow birds, but they were discerning about who they helped. Females mainly shared with others if they had nothing. The males always shared. We think the latter has to do with advertisement. Look at me being generous. With the females, it's mainly to help the others if they have nothing. Now, they were more inclined to respond when another bird begged, but even without this, they were still willing to share food with those with less to eat, which suggests that they were noticing the lack in their compatriots. They seem to include the perspective of the others in their decisions, says Masson. They may, again, have even what we call sympathy. Now, again, the suggestion suggests that the birds are displaying behaviors akin to those more associated with humans. This could indicate that they may be able to empathize with the situation in which their peers find themselves and act accordingly, perhaps with sympathetic motivations. Further tests are, however, needed to truly investigate whether birds show empathy and sympathy. All right, it is that time when we need to take a uh, break, and we will come back and we will see if all corvids are as nice as those magpies. Uh, so do stay tuned for that in just a few minutes. There are everyday actions to help prevent the spread of respiratory diseases. Wash your hands. Avoid close contact with people who are sick. Avoid touching your eyes, nose, and mouth. Stay home when you are sick. Cover your cough or sneeze. Clean and disinfect frequently touched objects with household cleaning spray. For more information, visit cdc.gov slash COVID-19. This message brought to you by the National Association of Broadcasters and this station. Hey, this is Wendy, host of Valley Free Radio's subculture music program, featuring new wave, 
post-punk, indie, and electronic music from the 70s to today. Join me every Friday night from 8 to 10 p.m. here on WXOJ or stream it live from your favorite listening device at valleyfreeradio.org. Okay, we are back and you are listening to Evidence-Based Radio. Now, it turns out that not all corvids display such generosity. Apparently, ravens are known for being quite egotistical in multiple studies. So, you know, your mileage may vary, apparently. However, in species with cooperative child-rearing, there is more sympathetic activity. Spontaneous generosity without, immediate expect- without immediately expecting something in return is a cornerstone of human society, whose evolutionary foundations are still not fully understood. One hypothesis postulates that raising offspring cooperatively may have promoted the emergence of a tendency to willingly benefit group members in early human groups. Another hypothesis speculates that only increased tolerance toward group members and a reduced level of aggression made such generous behavior possible. While researchers found evidence for both hypotheses when investigating other non-human primates, results from other animal taxa have so far been missing, explained lead author Lisa Horn uh, in another study looking at pro-social behavior in corvids. And so in this experiment, corvids with different chick-rearing strategies were compared. Now, some species raise their chicks cooperatively. Some nest in close proximity with conspecifics, demonstrating high tolerance, while others guard their territories against other members of the species. In this experiment, the crows operated a seesaw mechanism by landing on a perch, bringing food into the reach of their group members. If the bird itself wanted food, they'd have to leave the perch to try and reach it. However, this would cause the food to retract. Thus, the researchers suggested that birds which continued to perch were more social, allowing their group to eat. And they indeed found that birds who raised their offspring cooperatively were more willing to share food. Among male birds, this was especially true, with males from such species being particularly generous. Again, the research can be extrapolated beyond corvids. What fascinates me most it fascinates me the most is that in animals that are so different from us, evolutionary mechanisms very similar to the ones in our human ancestors seem to have promoted the emergence of generous behavior, concludes Horn. Now, again, more studies with other animals will need will be needed in order to further investigate this connection. But it seems that these sorts of pro-social uh, behaviors can emerge from this idea of shared community and shared child rearing. Now, it's not just corvids and parrots that have a lock on braining behavior, though they're the kind of rock stars of the uh, avian world when it comes to that. Researchers have found evidence that wild hummingbirds can count as they forage and can use that information in order to keep track of the tastiest flowers. Susan Healy, a biologist at the University of St. Andrews, and colleagues, including biologist Taz Vamos, now at the Victoria University of Wellington, studied rufous hummingbirds and found that they are the first wild vertebrate to to display the ability to count. Now, it's important to say wild vertebrates, so we've been able to teach 
uh, lab-reared animals to count, uh, several different kinds, including corvids again. Um, but this is the first time that they've taken birds from the wild and figured out that they actually had this ability. And so the tiny birds, males are rust-colored with pink throats, uh, weigh less than a nickel, and are just over three inches long. Now, they were already known for their long migrations and for having well-defined feeding territories and excellent memories of exactly what is available in that area. Now, the birds develop efficient routes to move from one nectar-rich flower to another. Healy and her colleagues wanted to explore how they were able to do this. Was it random, simply moving to the next seen flower? Or was there a way in which they know which next flower to move to? And so the researchers set up feeders with a nectar-like syrup in a valley in the Rocky Mountains of Alberta, Canada, just before the hummingbirds arrived in May. Once a male was consistently eating from a certain feeder and defending a territory, he would be trapped and marked for identification. They trained nine marked hummingbirds to feed from an artificial flower consisting of a yellow foam disc on a wooden stake, with a tube of syrup in the center of the disc. To test the numeracy of the birds, they lined up ten identical artificial flowers. Syrup was put in the first flower, and the researchers watched to see where the birds fed. They almost all went for the first flower initially, after they had been able to figure out which one had the tasty treat, though they sometimes checked other flowers. Then the team began to mix up the order of flowers after each visit. Sometimes they even moved the entire line so that the position couldn't be used as a marker for where the syrup was. The birds continued to start at the first flower, suggesting that they had an understanding of first. When the experiment was recreated with the third flower being the baited one, the birds almost always zoomed to the third flower directly. Now, in the last stage, the flowers were placed at varying intervals, not just in a slightly different position, to make sure that it wasn't just the spatial placing of the flowers that the birds were responding to. In this case, the birds made a few more mistakes, but overall, they still headed for the correct flower. This suggests that the birds have a conception of numerical sequences and can use this when foraging. Now, of course, there may yet be other ways that hummingbirds seek out the best flowers. And again, like humans, it may be that different birds use different strategies. But this certainly points to the idea that they are using this mechanism in order to be able to figure out where the flowers are and are able to know, for instance, that that third flower is just matured and has the most nectar rather than the second flower, which is a little beyond its uh, its peak and that sort of thing. Okay, so we've talked a lot about smart birds, but birds also do other things, such as, for instance, some of them fly huge distances. And so recently, a conservation group tracked the migration of a male bar-tailed godwit, which flew from Alaska to New Zealand nonstop. And so this shorebird, designated for BBRW, uh, so the birds are tagged with colored identification rings on their legs. And so this bird has blue, blue, red, white. 
hence for BBRW. We've talked about naming before. (laughs) And so it was tracked by Global Flyway Network, a conservation group that studies such long-distance migrations of shorebirds. So the bird actually left Alaska on September 16th, 2020, and arrived in a bay near Auckland, New Zealand, 11 days later. Bar-tailed godwits are known for their long-distance migrations, obviously, but it wasn't known just how long they could be. The birds summer in the Arctic and breed there before flying south as far as Australia and New Zealand. They're fast, lightweight birds with with wingspans between 28 and 31 inches. Now, the birds spend two months in Alaska gorging on clams and worms and just generally getting ready for that flight home. Um, It's kind of like uh, Fat Bear Week. (laughs) So um, I think I've mentioned it before, but uh, Fat Bear Week is something that happens every year in um, the Kenai National Park in Alaska, where bears (laughs) uh, basically spend a whole bunch of time bulking up for their non-migration, for their hibernation rather than migration. And so it's kind of the same thing. Um, You go to where there's lots of food and you eat all the food you can and you mate and then you get ready for the hardship to come, whether it be hibernation or migration. And so this little guy would have reached its destination sooner. However, uh, it actually endured winds, strong winds pushing him towards Australia, notes Jess Conklin, a researcher with Global Flyway Network, who also noted that he reached top speeds of around 55 miles per hour. So yeah, these are speedy little birds. Um, <laughs> they're going highway <laughs> speeds. And so the sleepless flight, he probably didn't sleep for all those 11 days, is fueled by fat and protein stored from that feasting in Alaska, coupled with an aerodynamic body shape, which takes less energy to move through air, a proper body weight to size ratio, and of course, again, being a fast flyer. So the faster you can get there, the easier it's going to be. Now, think of long-distance swimmers as well. So people who cross the English Channel will deliberately put on weight before beginning swimming so that they can burn it off as they go. Now, for how it knows where to go, we don't quite know yet. It might be using island chains as landmarks, or they may have an internal compass which lines up with the Earth's magnetic field. So for instance, we know that pigeons have um, a little bit of... um, magnetic uh, metal in their um, foreheads. And so they're able to sense the Earth's magnetic field. We know that for certain in um, pigeons. Now, sadly, these birds are actually on their way to being threatened as they're encroached upon by development and, well, drilling. Um, So... We really need to be working on that, as uh, I've probably noted a million times before. Okay, so another way in which birds can be seen to mirror humans is in their relationships, not only in the idea of communal child rearing, 
but in their mating habits. And so some birds mate for life, but the majority of birds change partners many times in their lives. And it turns out that not all birds even change partners for the same reasons. I should also mention that some uh, birds uh, supposedly mate for life, but are doing a lot of uh, sneaking behind the backs, so-called, of their um, partners. And of course, we haven't been able to discern whether or not the partners actually know this or not. Um, but yeah, birds have a lot of varied uh behaviors when it comes to mating, whether they are faithful or faithless, um, just like humans again. <laughs> and so an international team of scientists led by the University of Bath, England, have again been studying shorebirds. They found that plovers are more likely to quote unquote divorce after a successful nesting event rather than after a failed nesting event. Now, that seemed pretty counterintuitive. Most other birds are more likely to break up if the nesting is not successful. And so the researchers studied the mating behavior of eight different species of Charadrius plovers, encompassing 14 populations in locations worldwide. Now, plovers tend to learn to lay two to four eggs per nest and have up to four breeding attempts per season. The chicks grow up quickly, generally fledging within a month of hatching. In most species, both parents care for the hatchlings, but there are some species where only one parent will stay and the other will leave to mate with another partner. Now, they found that those pairs who had successfully mated were more likely to go their separate ways, whereas those who failed stayed together and tried to mate again. Females were more likely to desert the nest with good results. Those who abandoned a mate tend to have more viable offspring, so clearly this is working for them. They also went farther afield to find a new mate than other birds. Now, the research suggests that it's not just the species instinct, but real-time factors that shape how the birds react to nesting events. Females are more likely to leave their partners if the population is skewed toward males. This gives them greater choice in their partners in order to hopefully increase successful fledging events. Nerhulan Halimabiek, PhD student at the Milner Center for Evolution at the University of Bath and first author of the paper, said, our findings go against what you'd intuitively expect to happen, that divorce would be triggered by low reproductive success. Interestingly, we found that mate fidelity varied amongst different populations of the same species. For example, Kentish plovers in Europe and China are serial polygamists and are migratory, whereas those found on Cape Verde are exclusively monogamous. This again shows that mating behavior is not simply down to which species they belong to, but that other factors affecting the population are also important, such as ratio of males to females and temperature variation of the habitat. And so even though it may seem uh, counterintuitive, I think it can make a little bit of sense if you think about it in this way, which is that if you have birds that are... Um, successful, then it makes sense for them to then go on and try and mate successfully with other birds because 
in some respects, you can see that if they know that they're able to produce birds, why not have other mates and try to have other genetic combinations that might produce even better chicks. So I think that there are some evolutionary ideas as to why this might be, but it does tend to uh, sort of go against what we generally think of as the way that uh, such animals handle reproduction. Okay, so we were talking about how birds are able to fly long distances and about how our poor little uh, friend who flew all that way, was having trouble with uh, basically wind. And so another cool aspect of birds is that they are actually able to fly in gusty weather. And that weather is actually able to stymie human-made flyers. And so obviously, we wanted to know how they do it. Birds routinely fly in high wind close to buildings and terrain, often in gusts as fast as their flight speed. So the ability to cope with strong and sudden changes in wind is essential for their survival and to be able to do things like land safely and capture prey, said Dr. Shane Windsor from the Department of Aerospace Engineering at the University of Bristol. We know birds cope amazingly well in conditions which challenge engineered air vehicles of a similar size, but until now, we didn't understand the, me the mechanics behind it. And so, in order to study how they do that, the researchers filmed Lily, a barn owl, gliding through a range of fan-generated vertical gusts, the fastest of which matched her top flying speed. The study, published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B, were conducted at the Structure and Motion Laboratory at the Royal Veterinary College. The work revealed that birds' wings act as a suspension system to allow them to adapt to changing wind conditions. The team used a combination of high-speed video-based 3D surface reconstruction, CAT scans, and computational fluid dynamics in order to understand how the birds are able to avoid being battered by gusts through wing morphing, changing the shape and posture of their wings. Um, and so computational fluid dynamics is really cool. Uh, so basically, you can think of wind as actually being a fluid. And if you think of it as a fluid, then all sorts of fluid dynamics uh, can be extrapolated from what you're seeing in that um, in the interference patterns in the turbulence created by those wings um, in the system. And you can see some really cool uh if you watch computational uh, fluid dynamics kind of uh, visualizations, they're always really interesting and very cool to look at. Anyways, we began with very gentle gusts in case Lily had any difficulties, but soon found that, even at the highest gust speeds we could make, Lily was unperturbed. She flew straight through to get the food reward being held by her trainer, Lloyd Buck, commented Professor Richard Bomfrey of the Royal Veterinary College. Lily consistently kept her head and torso stable over the trajectory as if she was flying on a suspension system, sort of like that, sort of like the rig of a steady cam. <laughs> they found that the suspension system effect wasn't just about aerodynamic shape of her wings, but also benefited from the mass of her wings. So while humans' upper arms are around 5% of our body weight, for a bird, it's doubled. And so that weight helps them absorb the gusts. 
Perhaps most exciting is the discovery that the very fastest part of the suspension effect is built into the mechanics of the wings, so birds don't actively need to do anything for it to work. The mechanics are very elegant. When you strike a ball at the sweet spot of a bat or racket, your hand is not jarred because the force there cancels out. Anyone who plays a bat and ball sport knows how effortlessly this feels. A wing has a sweet spot, just like a bat. Our analysis suggests that the force of the gust acts near this sweet spot, and this markedly reduces the disturbance to the body during the first fraction of a second. The process is automatic and buys just enough time for other clever stabilizing processes to kick in, added Dr. Jonathan Stevenson from the University of Bristol. And so the research will now be used to help develop bio-inspired suspension systems for small-scale aircrafts. But it is also fascinating to know how the birds are able to handle such wonderful maneuvering. Okay, so we've talked a lot about birds tonight, but we cannot forget that they are, beyond being birds and awesome, also dinosaurs and awesome. <laughs> and so this makes them part of one of the most successful lineages of vertebrates ever. So I think I'm going to mess it up, but um, it turns out that we are closer in time to a Tyrannosaurus rex than a Stegosaurus is to Tyrannosaurus rex. I might be messing up the species there, but basically the idea is that Dinosaurs lived for a staggeringly long amount of time. Humans have been here a mere blink of an eye compared to how long dinosaurs ruled the earth. And so birds are continuing that legacy. So dinosaurs have been on the earth for a really, really long amount of time. And so again, that makes them better than us. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> um, what we want to know, though, is how did they survive when all of the other dinosaurs were actually wiped out by that Chicxulub impact or other factors? Um, there are still people who say other things were a part of it. But when a giant uh, meteor hits the Earth and takes a, like, small state-sized chunk out of the earth. Uh, I think that's enough, personally. But, you know, clearly other things may have uh, already been happening. We know that dinosaur, certain dinosaur species were already in decline by the time the meteor came. So there's some indication that, you know, it may just have been kind of the final straw. But anyways, that's not what we're talking about tonight. At the end of the Cretaceous, there were an abundance of bird and bird-like reptiles, but of these, only beaked birds survived. There's been a lot of discussion about what enabled modern-type birds to survive the KPG extinction, while other bird groups, non-avian dinosaurs, and even pterosaurs perished, says Royal BC Museum paleontologist Derek Larson. Now, all living birds have beaks without teeth, except for the occasional bird with an atavistic trait. And so, um, so that is something like a chicken when it's born with teeth. That occasionally happens. But the reason they can do this is because all birds started out with teeth. Archaeopteryx, 
initially confused naturalists because although it had wings, it also had teeth. As birds continued to evolve and speciate, some retained their teeth and others gave them up for the hard beaks of modern birds. Initially, researchers believed that they lost their teeth in order to reduce their weight so that they could fly better. But it turned out some toothed birds were actually better flyers than some with beaks. Newer evidence suggests that it may have been a change in diet that caused the birds to lose their teeth. Paleontologists have found that some dinosaur groups, including birds, evolved beaks and lost teeth as they moved towards being herbivorous. Teeth are good for catching insects and small prey, but beaks are better for plucking and picking fruit, seeds, and other plant foods. And the morphological development of the beaks may also have led to the loss of teeth. Changes to the skull and face as the beak became more complex may have moved develop developing tissues around, changing how they interact in the embryo and resulted in the loss of tooth formation, says King's College London anatomist Abigail Tucker. Now, only a small cadre of birds actually survived the mass extinction. Whole groups of birds, including the toothed birds called Anathionithes, Anathionithes, perished. It's unlikely that it was only beaks that saved those birds that did survive, but it may have given them a distinct advantage at the time. By the time the asteroid hit, beaked birds were already eating a much larger variety of food than their toothed cousins. While, insects, while animals and insect life became scarce on the other side of the catastrophe, beaked birds were able to continue to feed on seeds from destroyed forests and wait for vegetarian to be, vegetation to begin to return. However, having a beak was not enough, Tucker says. For instance, the duck bird duck-like bird Vagaris had a beak and lived at the end of the Cretaceous, but it does not seem to have survived. Birds with beaks and powerful gizzards capable of crushing tough seeds had a greater chance of surviving due to the kind of food available in the direct aftermath. Many birds, including those related to ducks, parrots, and chickens, became smaller but retained their body side, size, which enabled them to end up with a greater brain-to-body ratio, and thus set them up to develop intelligence beyond that which the non-avian dinosaurs were able to evolve. However, it's not all good news for current birds. The loss of teeth does limit the number of dietary niches birds could explore, says University of College, University College London anatomist Ryan Fierce. Herbivorous mammals and non-avian dinosaurs evolved ever-growing teeth so that they continue eating plants as as the plants wore their teeth down, but this just is impossible with a beak. The test is now to try and find more fossils of birds from the Paleocene, the time directly after the meteor impact. Okay, that's all the time we have for tonight. Please do stay tuned for more Evidence-Based Radio. Evidence-Based Radio is a member of the Planetside Podcast Network. To learn more, go to planetsidepodcasts.com. The theme song is Widgen by Bird Boy. Purchase the full song at smarturl.it slash birdboy.